when I was younger and had more time on my hands, I used to often go to see movies that were sort of not the, the big blockbuster ones, but when I was a student, would often go to see more artsy films that would be the kind that would uh, be in little uh, theaters by the side of the road, ones that aren't frequented by mass crowds. Nowadays, of course, you see those kinds of films on Netflix, but back in the Stone Age when I was a, a student, uh, that wasn't yet possible. And one of the films that I remember and was thinking about this week is a, is a movie called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. It's also a, a play, I believe. And one of the things that's interesting about that, and, and they're odd kind of names, it will become clear why those names are used in the title. It's really a story of these two guys, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and these two are traveling because they want to go meet their friend. It's a 14th or 15th century Europe, and they're traveling to meet their friend who's uh, living in a castle in Denmark. And so you're going on this way, and you run into a, a theater troupe is on the way to the same castle uh, because they want to do a play. Then you finally get there, and you meet your friend, but he seems really distracted because he's busy having arguments with his stepfather, who turns out to be the king, uh, who has this kind of weird relationship with his mom. And then uh, you find that uh, your friend's girlfriend commits suicide, and her name's Ophelia. And then you uh, see there's a little play going on in which uh, the uh, stepdad kills uh, the, or excuse me, the man kills uh, uh, the husband in order to become the, wife, or the husband of his wife. And then you begin to realize that, in fact, this isn't just an independent story. And the penny really drops when you realize that their friend's name is Hamlet. It's actually a story where two very minor characters in the play Hamlet, named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who only have a few scenes, uh, it sees that play, that whole drama of Hamlet, that famous Shakespeare play, through their eyes, and you begin to realize that this is actually the same story simply told by a different perspective. And so it's actually a pretty interesting perspective and an interesting way of looking at a famous play in a different way. Now, I mention that because I believe that today's story is actually the other side of the story we heard last week. For what you see last week, if you were here with us today, you heard the famous story of Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, about a man who goes down the road to Jericho, finds a sick and hurting man by the side of the road, and stops to help him. And this is an illustration, Jesus says, of what it means to love your neighbor. I believe that this story today about Mary and Martha is the flip side of that, which is, this is a story about how to love your God. I want to talk to you about why I think that, to clear away some misconceptions that often come about the story, and then to focus on uh, how it is that this story informs how we love God here as 21st century Christians. So to back up and to begin, why do I think that this is a story that's a sort of a parallel or a, 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 a second uh, or flip side of the same story we heard last week? Well, one of the most uh, easy ways of looking at this and one of the most compelling reasons why I think that is because of how last week's story begins. If you can think back or refresh your memory, about how that story begins. This is in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. And remember last week I said a lawyer doesn't mean the, the person who is necessarily in the courtroom. Lawyer means a scholar of the legal parts of the Bible, a person who studies the Bible and is a Bible scholar. So he addresses Jesus and he says, what must I do? He says, teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, or excuse me, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. He said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
And then Jesus tells the story of a land loving his neighbor. One of the first reasons why the second story, which happens right after this, is so compelling uh, to believe this is a story about loving your God is because the obvious next question is, he just said, well, who is my neighbor? Well, what about the other half of the question he just asked? Well, how do I worship and serve God? Here's another clue that this is something that's meant to be the flip side. Uh, And I'm going to give you for bonus uh, a little Greek lesson. You know how in this story, how does it begin when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now in Greek, in English, it just says here, the New Revised Standard Version is the Bible we use, and it's usually a pretty good translation, but here it says a man was going down. In fact, in Greek, it doesn't just say a man was going down. In Greek, it's anthropos tis. Anthropos, some of you may recognize from anthropology, it means man. If he wanted to just say man, he'd say anthropos, but he says anthropos tis, which means a certain man. Most translations will say, a certain man was going down to Jericho. And the translators here thought, well, that's awkward English. I'm just going to drop the certain part. But why that's important is, listen to how it begins with Martha and Mary. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed into her home. Do you know where it says, a woman named Martha? In fact, it actually says, gunetis. Uh, those of you will, who are, again, Greek scholars who recognize gynecology, what does that mean? It means a doctor who specializes in women's health. Gune means woman. Gune tis means a certain woman. A certain village, a certain woman, a certain man. Parallels between these two stories. You know, here's the other thing that's interesting. Do you notice how the young lawyer comes to Jesus at the beginning? He says, teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And then he says, you must love the Lord your God, etc., etc., and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice how it is that when Martha addresses Jesus, how does she address him? She addresses him and says this, uh, or excuse me, verse 39. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. Martha, distracted by her many tasks, came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that the work is being done to, by myself? But the Lord answered her. Lord, Lord, Lord. In the previous story, Jesus is referred to as teacher. In this, again, Lord, Lord, Lord. Why? Because the Lord your God is what you should love and love your neighbor. And then it emphasizes Lord, Lord, Lord when we're talking about Jesus in the second story. Now, I think that these are all indications that what's trying to be told here is is that here we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what do you do when God places a neighbor across your path? You put aside your plans. You give some of yourself. And you give a costly kind of love to meet the needs of the neighbor God puts in front of you. What's the second story about Martha and Mary? It's what do you do when God places himself across your path? And how is it that you put aside your plans, your needs, and give a costly kind of sacrifice to worship the Lord your God? Jesus is the Lord. And this is a story about how it is we honor Jesus and how it is that we worship God in our lives. And there's a parallel in both of those. So that's why I think that this is a parallel in talking to us about how we are to love the Lord our God. I mentioned earlier about misconceptions, though, and here's how I want to start talking about the Mary and Martha portion. There's a very long history of interpretation, and if you're, uh, again, scholars of the medieval age, here's another bonus question you can use when you're playing Jeopardy at home. One of the favorite ways of, trans- or of interpreting this passage through all the Middle Ages is, is that scholars would say, well, this is obviously an allegory. These two people, Martha and Mary, are sort of stand-ins. They point to something bigger than themselves. Mary is the person who points to the contemplative life that monks and nuns live. 
Monks and nuns, what do they do? They sit at the feet of Jesus. They pray seven times a day. They're cloistered away from the needs of the world and all the stuff and and worries about family and worries about work, and they spend their time praying. Martha, the lesser, the one that Jesus criticizes, is like all you schmucks out there who are doing your farming, doing your carpentry, doing all that other worldly stuff, unlike the high and mighty monks and nuns. Now, of course, I don't know many nuns and monks nowadays. There's no monastery here in Barhaven I can point to as the way of of great contemplative life. But the modern spin that I uh, have sometimes heard, and uh, they're usually not as obvious as this, but it goes like this. Well, you know, as a priest, you pay me, and you know what I do? Well, this week I read some books about Jesus, and I had some conversations about Jesus, and somebody came to me and asked that I would pray to Jesus for them, and then I spent some time preparing the sermon, and you know what I did? I floated around, and I I was the person who was really spiritual, contemplating Jesus all week long, while you poor schmucks were doing your accounting and mowing your lawns and doing all that filthy stuff that regular people do, unlike the really spiritual and mighty people who do the things that Mary did and sit at the feet of Jesus. Well, that, of course, is the right interpretation. No. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, is that that's clearly not. You know, it's not simply, an, uh, I'd say, a story about action is bad and contemplation is good, because what did the previous story just say? Two, a priest and a Levite who have been busy working at the temple doing all the godly stuff are the ones who are the bad guys in the story because they go around the person who's in need. Who's the good guy in the story? Not the guy who sits next to him and contemplates the meaning of suffering. Instead, the person who actually stoops down, gives the medicines to this man, puts him on his donkey, pays money to the innkeeper to look after him, the person who acts, not the person who contemplates. So what's going on here? If it's not just contemplation good, action bad, what is it that we're really being told here? I think what we're really being told in both stories, and why it's the flip side of the same story, is it's not one is better than the other. The key is the discernment. What do you prioritize in each of these situations? We are told, and here's a a telling little phrase that we hear in this story that indicates what's wrong with Martha's attitude. It says this, verse 40, Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to Jesus and asked. To understand what's going on here, Martha's not doing useless stuff. Everybody's got to eat. That's important. But she was distracted and paid attention to things where of secondary importance while a thing of primary importance was right in front of her. And how easy it is for us in any moment in life, whether it's because a, a neighbor's there or whatever the case is, to be so fixated on the things we think are important that we don't actually take time to think about what's most important. And sometimes the most important things in life, the most important things God is telling us, get neglected because we're so preoccupied with the things we think we need to do instead of the things that God thinks we need to do. And one of the most important uh, reflections that should come out of this is to ask ourselves, how is it that we can actually do what Mary did, to listen to God and to let Jesus tell us what's important and to check our priorities in the times where we're most tempted to give our priorities in the wrong direction? And this is actually where the contemplative life really comes in and is important, not because it's always how you do things and clergy have it better than others, but because I think this is a tale telling us that there are times where it's really important to work into your life a spiritual discipline of allowing yourself times where Jesus can speak to you. You know, one of the things that we often say in church is, come to church. 
obviously enough, right? It's good to have people, bums in the pews. It's important for people to come to church. But you know why we say that, at least in our better moments, why I say that is not so that I can fill out a good form when the bishop asks how many people are coming and not just so I can weigh heavy how, how heavy that offering plate is. Why we encourage people to come to church is that you are making a decision that says, yes, God has called me to work, to serve him out in the world, but church is an opportunity for you to reset your compass, an opportunity for you to come back and, and connect with the Lord and make sure that as you go out and serve the Lord in the world, you are serving him with your priorities in the right way. Some of that's through preaching, right? Of course, the idea is, is that you may be distracted by different things. You come, and of course, you hear God's uh, Bible, the scriptures interpreted in ways that hopefully will give some direction. Maybe you're finding forgiveness difficult, and so you're being reminded forgiveness is important. Maybe you're finding it really difficult to do one thing or another, and it's supposed to encourage and help you. But one of the most powerful ways that we have our priorities reset when we come to church is this table I'm standing right next to, the altar. Have you ever considered how profound it is that wherever you are coming from, for those of you who are gathered here today, some of you I know are highly educated. I know some of you are people who have important positions of leadership in your jobs. I know some of you are very accomplished people who have many tasks that you do very well and you have earned the respect of peers, of colleagues, and that's a wonderful, great thing. But you know, when you come up and you line up to receive the body and blood of Christ, You will be lining up next to the little toddler we hear right now. You'll be lining up next to uh, older people who are retired. You may line up next to a person who is experiencing the first stages of dementia. You may be lining up next to a person who has no educational achievements or a person who doesn't have much, a person who frankly may be homeless. And what do all of us do when we gather here? We do exactly the same thing no matter who you are and where you come from. You put one hand in front of the other, And you ask, Jesus, I need to receive from you. Feed me. This is something that reminds us that regardless of who we are, where we come from, we are being fed by a Father in heaven who loves each of us because each of us are his children. And like any good father, he loves all of us the same. It is a humbling moment where we come each time on Sunday to be reminded that where we really receive sustenance, whether we're succeeding in life or not, whether we're struggling or doing just dandy, We still come before the Lord and say, you need to feed us because you are the source of our life and our health. It's the same way too when you work spiritual disciplines into your life. Maybe you do have that that benefit. I have a tremendous benefit. You do me such a privilege by saying, I want you to read. I want you to spend time in prayer. And I do. But not everybody has that. You work shift work. You can't say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with my job at the warehouse. Please give me 15 minutes to pray. You don't have that the way that I do. But maybe you have five minutes in the morning where you can sit on your deck and sit in silence and say, Lord, if there's something you want to tell me, tell me. And it may not be that God speaks with a booming voice out of heaven, but believe me, when you say, God, speak to me, he will guide you and he will direct you. The Mary and Martha story is not always spend your time doing this. The Mary and Martha story is provide times in your life where you actually allow God to speak to you, to reset your priorities. Church is an important part. But in life, it's an important part, not just to stop and smell the roses, but to stop and consciously open up your heart to let God speak to you in whatever way God may want to. So That's one of the most important things I think the story is telling us, but here's the other one. Also really interesting that Martha, when she comes to Jesus, she's distracted by many things. Do you notice, though, how Martha speaks to Jesus as opposed to Mary's attitude? And this is a really interesting contrast. 
This is what Martha says. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. You know what that sounds like? Hey, Jesus, you're not doing your job. Go over and do what I just told you to do, which is get this woman to help me in the kitchen. Frankly, that's exactly what her tone is. Jesus, you are not helping me meet my priorities. You need to, t- uh, to straighten up Jesus and start doing your job, which is to help me do the things I want to do. And Jesus says why Mary has the better part, partly because she's sitting and listening, and, and like I say, it's important to do it. But Mary also has the better part because she's actually allowing Jesus to set the priorities with her time that Martha's refusing to do. Think about that story of the priest and Levi. Maybe they got something really important to do at home in the Good Samaritan story. Why is the Samaritan the good guy? Because he puts his plans aside when God says, put those plans aside because I got something more important. How easy is it for us to go through life always assuming that Jesus is sort of like our, our gopher? Go do this for me, Jesus. Go do that for me, Jesus, instead of actually saying, Jesus, what's most important here? And having the humility to let Jesus set your priorities instead of you setting for yourself. Now, this story here about the domestic story is actually something that speaks to me an awful lot because uh, Martha's in the kitchen preparing things, and I gotta say, one of the things that I often struggle with in my pride is when I and Tabia, my wife, have uh, people over because a lot of times what my attitude like, just something as simple as, as wanting to provide good food and making that a priority above actually being there with my friends. I mean, think about how it works, right? Oh, we haven't seen these friends in a while. We should have you over because we really like to connect. And then what do I do? The entire time the friends are over, I'm running back and forth from the kitchen. Oh, when do I got to put the carrots on? And has the meat been browning for too long? And, and I got to make sure I put the coffee pot on. And I've got to do this thing. And I got to do that thing. And at the end of the evening, I realize I've had very hurried, if any, conversations with my guests. I'm stressed out and I'm tired. And at the end of the evening, do you know why I've really failed my friends? It's because secretly, if I'm really honest with myself, what I hope they'll be saying as they get in the car and go home is, wow, Stephen's a great cook. When what I should really be hoping they're saying is, wow, Stephen's a really great friend. Now, (laughs) food's important. But when you make food so important that you don't care about the quality of the relationship of the person God's put right in front of you, then you have really missed something. Maybe some evenings what I need to do is throw in some macaroni and cheese in the oven, open up a bag of Caesar salad from Costco, and sit and talk to my friends instead of being there in the kitchen. You bring the salad, Sandy. And then you're welcome. And also a bottle of wine. Don't forget that part. Pardon? Yes, I I do make good pizza. And if I do say so myself, we had friends over last night and they thought the food was really great. So you can do both if you really want to. Um, Now I'm distracted, sorry. (laughs) Oh, right. But there's just an example. It's like that's not the biggest thing in the world. But you get into this habit of always uh, putting your own priorities first and never really allowing God to say, wait a second, is this really the most important thing? The problem is, is that what I think Jesus is saying here is not that one way is better than the other. Some people are called to be people who are active with their hands, some people with their minds, whatever the case may be. The real question is, who's really calling the shots? And the problem is, is that we can easily go through life never really questioning that, when in fact I think this is a story that's saying you need to be going through life ready and willing to swallow your pride, to humble yourself when Jesus presents something to you that is more important than what your plans are. As a parent, this happens all the time, right? It's like, 
I'm thinking about work, I'm thinking about something, and my child wants to come to me and tell me a story about something happened at school, and you half listen. And how easily it is that this goes on and on and on, and you realize now they're moving away from home, and I've spent my life always prioritizing things and not prioritizing the sacred duty that God gave me of honoring this child of God and raising them to know what a loving father looks like. Or your spouse. Like, yes, when you get married, you, you promise to, to have and to hold this person, not to commit adultery, but you know what you also do? With all that I am and all that I have, I honor you in the name of God. Am I honoring my spouse when she comes home stressed? She's just come back from commuting and she needs to talk a little bit and I just don't feel like it? I've got to ask myself, am I keeping my priorities right in the sacred responsibility I have? And the same is true with neighbors and people that are around us. Are we getting out of our car each time we drive into the driveway and busy texting as we walk into the house and not noticing the person on the porch next door that maybe God is saying, develop a friendship with because this is a person who doesn't have many friends. It's not complicated. It isn't always something that's, that's rocket science. But what it really is is to say, God, allow yourself to intrude upon my life to show me what's important and to let go of the things that aren't. So what do we get out of this story? This is a story that reminds us that we are to constantly, on a regular basis, to make place for God to speak to us, to bring quiet, to bring times where God can reach into our hearts and challenge us. That includes church and other spiritual disciplines and sometimes something as simple as enjoying nature. But it also says, act on it. Let yourself swallow your pride at times where that stands in the way of doing the most important thing and start putting the most important thing forward. Because those two things, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, are in fact things that are married together. Because when you love someone made in the image of God, you are loving God. And that's something deeply important to what it means to be a Christian. As you go out from here, remember, God calls you to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ in this world. So love the people that come across your path and keep your ear open to let the Lord tell you what he wants of you. Because when he calls you to something, even when it's tough, it is the right thing that brings joy and God's kingdom to the world and helps you fulfill the primary task you have in life of being an ambassador for the Lord who made us.